You were possessed as well? Yeah, but uh, I got better. <laughs> got better. Well, I'm glad that you don't, you don't usually come out of uh, possessions feeling better. Well, I mean, it depends on how you treat your demon, right? Yeah. Get that pea soup spit out and just kept going. Yeah, well, my demon likes pea soup. Also, I have a little bit of oyster crackers with it. And so my demon mm. did not have the uh, compulsion to expel it. Mm, that'll do it. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified. The show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the movie I said I never wanted to talk about when we first started this podcast. That's right, it's finally time to talk about Hereditary. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cenobites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? Holy fuck, is this a better Alex Wolf movie than old? <laughs> I will say I had totally forgotten that he was in both of these movies, and then I was like looking yes. him up, I was like, surely this boy has been in some other good movies, because he's quite good in this film. And I was like, oh, okay. What a difference a director makes. If you want a better Alex Wolf movie than old, I recommend Pig. I did see using Pig. I haven't seen that yet. And uh, the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, also with us, our co-host, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? Mad. I hear you. I'm with you. <laughs> and our guest tonight, our good friend, writer and comics critic, Greg Silver. Greg, how are you? I'm doing all right, and I am aware that I am the one uh, you all should be bad at right now because this was my idea. <laughs> I mean, you helped us pull the Band-Aid off, and I was mad at this movie before you had anything to do with this podcast. It's okay. Good, good. Well, yeah. I have strong feelings about this movie, which I felt like meant we needed to talk about it at some point because it is much more like interesting to talk about as far as what values it has what progressive stuff it addresses the way it talks about mental health and the way it deals with women in this movie than a lot of the movies we talk about whether we all come down on the same side of that or not yeah i mean i do think this movie does address the important issue of teaching audiences the difference between Anne dowd and margot martindale so oh I'm glad God. it raised the way. I'm glad. <laughs> look, I'm glad for anything that raises just and doubt like awareness. Yeah. Who knew they needed a spooky and doubt? You know, that's uh, not a thing I saw coming. Oh, I honestly, any movie could use a spooky and doubt. Yeah, I will say if you have not seen this movie yet and you plan on watching it and you're listening to us talk about it, there's not a ton to spoil about it because it is kind of a weird, windy movie. But like, that's a lie. It is sonically unpleasant, if that makes a difference to you. They have taken that Hitchcock trick of playing bees in the background and moved it up this level of, like, constant sound of a dryer with shoes in it going on in the background. Like This must be what it's like to be the master on Doctor Who. There's just this constant <laughs> sound of drums the whole time in the background, just boom, boom, boom. It definitely captures that like unnerving shit low key just vaguely the vibes are fuck effect of the lavender town music when you go play pokemon red and blue <laughs> lavender like, town music is delightful that song is fucking haunted 
It is, but it's compared to this, it's delightful. Like it has a it major key like hook in it. It is the second most horror movie element of Pokemon. You know, second only to the part whose body count of children sent to the hospital would put most slashers to shame. <laughs> yeah, I haven't played uh, the original Pokemon since I was about seven years old. So I'm going to have to look that up after we finish recording. Yeah, yeah. It's a I love it. It's a real innovator in like dissonant sounds, like things hitting your left and right ears at the different beats. It, it's a whole creepy thing. Yeah. There's articles creepy. about it. All I know is that the music is a lot less scary in, in Lavender Town. If you just go, oh, stinky, oh, stinky, and then it's fine. <laughs> well, there's a lot of things, oh, stinky about hereditary. I'm oh, sure. Like... Sure is. Oh, this movie is a Holy prime banana. reason of why Smell-O-Vision should never be a thing. I mean, the vibes by themselves are rancid. Like... This movie exudes flies. I didn't quite put my finger on it the first time I watched this movie, but like watching it over like the sound bar this time and like having good sound coming out and the fact that like I can hear audibly that constant noise in the background that's like there to set you off and make you feel uncomfortable. Like this movie gave me a headache to watch for a while. I was like, I was like, oh, is this a creepy scene? It must be because it's playing that noise in the background. They're all a creepy scene. There's no non-creepy scenes. Yeah, I mean, to Ari Aster's credit, that's what he's trying to do with is elicit a reaction from you. And it certainly like makes me feel things. They're not necessarily things I want to feel. But yeah, this movie has a smell and it's a combination of paint thinner and rotting grandma corpse. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah, it really is. Or like glue. Yeah, a lot of glue. Okay, what is Annie's job? She makes miniatures. Is that a thing you can do? Just make tiny things? She's nervous. She makes miniatures professionally. Yeah, she has a deal with the gallery. Like at first I thought like, oh, maybe this is miniature for a movie. I thought, oh, maybe she just makes high-end dollhouses. But I guess it's just a gallery where you go and you look at shit and you're like, damn, this shit sure is tiny. And she's making miniatures of all of all the horrible shit that's happened in her life. Yes. Oh, the man. unsung heroes of this movie, I, I just gotta say, are the people who, I don't know what you call them in the art world, the people who are paying her to create this gallery who are being so patient and so accommodating and so gentle. As they're like, hey, just checking in. Yeah. Um, you know, if we need to push back the day of the show, that's totally fine. Yeah, her gallery rep is um, pretty chill. Yeah. That um, gallery rep is also an Ari Aster voice cameo. Oh, good. Well, well I, Ari Aster, I hope, is as chill. I'm sure Ari we'll... Aster supports his creatives uh, in-universe and out, I hope. I know in Emily's stuff, we will we will get into this, but I, I really want to, beyond the obvious villains of this movie, this movie really, really, really made me hate Gabriel Byrne a lot, who is horror movie dad slash horror movie husband, who is unsupportive and also paranoid, but also right, but also doesn't do anything about it. <laughs> It's been a while since we had, like, a classic chip. And Gabriel Byrne is that real classic, like, uh, you've become a real drag since our daughter died and you started seeing ghosts. 
wish you would stop being so haunted by our dead daughter, really bringing down the mood. Like, he has the option of supporting his wife or protecting his son, and he chooses neither. Yeah. And then he blames everyone else for not doing the thing. Just to put on my little, like, one-sentence review hat before we get into um, the recap, there's a lot I love. There's a lot to dissect. This is definitely a deep movie with a lot of interesting things to say. I do think both the backbone and beating heart of the movie is a downright Oscar-caliber performance from Tony Collette. Absolutely. I am. Yeah. And I mean, the, the kid's not to be discounted either. They are both oh, yeah. fantastic. I think everybody in this movie gives an incredible performance. Yeah, that's my one sentence review is everything about this movie is great and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should establish this before we really get into things. The reason I recommended, recommended doesn't feel like the right word. I suggested we talk about this movie is because unironically, this is my favorite horror movie. And that's not because I... I get it. A, I get it. It's great. Yeah, and it's not, it's not because I had a great time watching it, but it really, to me, just encapsulates what is so powerful about horror as a genre, or at least horror when it leans so heavily into the raw emotion of fear. Yeah. You know, it's not a horror comedy. This is a rather humorless movie. This was a movie about exploring the absolute darkest pits of the human mind. You say there's no comedy, and yet the scene of Tony Collette defending making a painstaking miniature recreation of her daughter's death scene, and then going like, I don't see any reason why my son would be bothered by this. It's purely objective. <laughs> This isn't about him. Purely objective is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But it's not funny, haha. Like we, I no, was, no, no, there not was funny, no fucking ha-ha. audience laughing. No, no, not not funny, haha. But still deeply funny. No, yeah. I mean, like I feel like there was a humor singularity that, like a naked singularity, shed all of the possible laughter and just exists as a point in space. Where you know that it's humorous, but you cannot react to it because it is so dense of a moment that it is completely devoid of of substance because it is beyond the definition of, I, of the universe. I want to add a laugh track to this movie just to see how fucking weird it would get. Oh, well, if you go to YouTube, someone a, a year or so ago did cut a trailer as if it was a quirky family comedy. And I will send it to you guys after we finish the discussion. Excellent. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll put, I'll put a pin in that. And hopefully we can post that when we post the episode. Because that sounds incredibly surreal. I might, like, dissociate. It sounds so surreal. That's a great lead-in to talking about the plot of this movie. Okay. Um, dissociating. So, Emily, take it away. All right. So, we've got Ari Aster as the director and the writer. Uh, the stars, Tina Collette, Alex Wolf, Millie Shapiro, and Dowd, Gabriel Baird, some other people. All right. That's uh, Tony Collette, not Tina Collette. Tony. Did I say Tina Collette? Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm going to redo that one. Sorry, I wrote Tina for. Oh, because I was saying Tina Horn. Okay. So, our stars are Tony Collette, Alex Wolf, Millie Shapiro, Aaron Dowd, and Gabriel Baird, and some other people, but mostly them. We begin. 
with an obituary for Ellen Taperlay, 78, her daughter Annie, and her family attend the funeral. It is unusually ominous, mostly sonically. Does this whole movie occur in a miniature? We just don't know. Annie's daughter, Charlie, is allergic to nuts and has the most personality of this whole family, even though it sometimes involves upcycling found dead animal corpses. That's okay, though, because Annie processes her grief by recreating her most difficult moments in life into painstakingly detailed miniatures. Charlie has trouble processing the death of her grandma, and she mentions that Ellen, quote-unquote, wanted her to be a boy. Okay. Grandma was so normal and totally isn't haunting Annie or her family and leaving them haunted books. Charlie's older brother, Peter, is studying the hero's journey, smokes weed, and is horny, just so you know he also has qualities. A week after the burial, Ellen's grave has been desecrated, and Annie's husband is already lying about it. Annie goes to group therapy for loss, and we find out more about Annie's family history of mental illness and abuse. There's a lot of it. Hauntings continue for Charlie. As Annie tries to convince Peter to take Charlie to a teenager party full of loud music, drugs, alcohol, and walnuts. Charlie doesn't want to go, but mom insists. Peter tells Charlie to eat cake at the party whilst he distributes weed to his crush and her friends who drop the arsler about Charlie's artwork. Alas, the cake is full of nuts and Charlie starts going into shock. Peter, stoned, tries to rush her to the hospital in their car. Apparently his weed was so damn good that he forgot that he had a cell phone or EpiPens. And he also swerves around a deer in the road and lops Charlie's whole head off as she's trying to get air and hits a power pole with some occult writing on it. Maybe my least favorite scene in any movie I've ever seen. This is horrifying. This scene of her asphyxiating in the back of the car while he is driving is like, I remembered it from seeing it before. And like started like tearing up in anticipation of this scene. I was like, oh, no, I I have thoughts later on about the narrative hoops that this party needs to jump through in order to get us to this scene. Yeah, there's okay, nothing like a good walnut chopping at a teen party. Yeah, you know, I mean, they, they're, they're having like you fine. do. We all just been wild and crazy teenagers just chopping walnuts like there's no tomorrow. A shop that doesn't need to exist. Like they can tell no, us it needs to with the move that the cake had nuts in it. <laughs> they don't need to show them cutting up walnuts. I thought it, it was a pretty effective bit of foreshadowing. The first time I could say that just a shot of chopping walnuts has been scary. But I mean, I think every shot is. in this movie is scary. All right. So Peter is so traumatized by his own ineptness that he just drives home and goes to bed, leaving his sister's headless corpse in the back seat to be discovered by his parents in the morning. It that was is rough. This is where we really, this and the power pole is really where we start to get the theme of weird shit written on the wall. So now Annie's coping mechanisms include sleeping in Charlie's treehouse with ominous and totally safe red heating lamps while Peter dissociates on the rain. Annie distrays, decides to forsake group therapy, but instead she connects with a really nice, totally normal lady named Joan. Peter is now very haunted by Charlie, and Annie continues to have trouble meeting her deadlines. We learn that Annie sleepwalks. Uh, with the following conversation, Joan asks, how's your relationship with your son? Annie responds with a long story about how she almost immolated him while sleepwalking. Very normal. Annie's husband, Steve, shows an emotion when he finds her reconstructing the death of their daughter as a miniature complete with a little bloody head. I mean, yeah, they should call a therapist, but spoilers, they don't. Instead, they have an awkward and upsetting family dinner full of alternating slouching and yelling. Annie and Peter blame each other for Charlie's death. Hey, 
At least the family is quietly communicating something. Annie encounters Joan at Not Michael's, and Joan helps Annie process grief grief by showing her the very normal, very healthy method of conducting seances. To be fair, this seance is one of the most unambiguous seances ever, short of a Ghostbusters film, and Annie is duly freaked the fuck out. Annie starts sleepwalking again and trips out, seeing Peter covered in ants. Then she randomly admits that she didn't want to be his mother, but she was forced to, I guess, and but it was only a dream, I guess. And he begins to acknowledge how super fucking haunted they are and tells everyone in the middle of the night to get up and we got a wiki house of seance shit. And Peter and Steve are just like, okay, I guess. And Annie's like, we got to do this as a family. The seance works, though, and now we all know what we saw. Though we're not sure if Annie properly recited the passwords of Necronomicon, but at least Peter is traumatized times 27. But his reflection is having a good time. Annie tries another coping method, destroying everything in her workshop. Everyone in this movie is taking a lot of pills, but I have not once seen a psychiatrist prescribing anything to these people. But they do have a dog. Sad face. Gabriel Byrne is a psychologist. That's his job in this movie. Oh, I forgot. That is... I didn't see him prescribe anybody with anything or do anything. Yeah, when he writes emails uh, later on in the movie, it is from his professional psychologist email address. Well, he is obviously a shitty one. He's very bad. It was gburn at psychology.brain. <laughs> was it? No. No. <laughs> it should have been. It really should have been. Annie very convincingly tells Peter she would never hurt him. And then she goes to uh, find Charlie's book that is super haunted and full of pictures of dead Peter. And she tries to throw it on the fire. But she can't burn the book because when it burns, she burns. That's weird. Annie tries to talk to Joan about this weird shit, but Joan is not at home. She has left her spell about Peter, gasp, and Charlie's pigeon head doll, gasp, to go harass Peter at school. She's trying to expel him, but she hasn't filed the necessary paperwork with the principal, so she just yells, I expel you, which is totally normal. Annie decides to finally consult a therapist. Just kidding. She goes through her mom's old shit that she had this whole time and finds her mom's cool coven scrapbook and a demon summoning ritual. Highlight on King Payman, who is the recurring theme of uh, this film and his sigil, which is uh, represented in the wrong way. Steve finally tries to write an email to 911, while Annie discovers more of her mom's old shit in the house, specifically her headless body, recently exhumed from the grave and attracting flies in the attic. Peter gets possessed and has a breakdown in class while they're discussing how punishment brings wisdom. A nose breakdown. He has all sorts of breakdowns. <laughs> He does a cool dance move and then uh, slams his head on the desk and breaks his nose. It's weird. Upon coming home, Annie shows Steve the body in the attic. Annie starts ranting about her mom and demons. And Steve says, well, it was you who exhumed the body, wasn't it? Definitely you dug up this body by yourself and got it home, leaving no sign of having drug a dead body through my house and up the attic stairs. He's a psychologist. Very he bad. He probably has a degree. Somebody um, should set him on fire. Well, guess what? Good luck. Oh, boy. Do we have some, have some good, good news? news for you, Jeremy? <laughs> so Annie begs Steve to throw the book that burns you back in the fire. What could go wrong? Steve has a brainwave and is like, no. So Annie throws the book in the fire instead. And it still immolates Steve. Problem solved. Peter, meanwhile, wakes from his post-breakdown nap and walks around in the dark to weird noises. Annie's now flying around and crawling on the walls. Normal. This shot of him waking up and sitting up where she is just hanging on the wall behind him. And if you're not 
paying very close attention, you just don't even see her there is incredible. Yeah, yeah you just see movement. Yeah. Oh, when she's like hanging on the roof and like just, oh. Seeing that in a theater too, where you could gradually start to hear people go, <gasps> unbelievable experience. And then when I rewatched in preparation for the podcast with my sister, I was watching her face the entire time during that scene and she did not notice at all. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, this movie is made well. Peter is still waking up, though, so he doesn't notice until after discovering his dad's burnt corpse and uh, some random naked people look smiling at him from the dark. Possessed Danny attacks him, though, and he runs upstairs like you do in a horror movie and hides in the corpse attic. It's a cool plan, but alas, Annie is already in there. She's floating and sawing her own head off with a piano wire. Upon seeing more naked people, Peter jumps out the window. I mean, there was a lot of naked old people. I get it. It's a lot of elderly nudity. I mean, like... They shouldn't be in their house, especially where there's a minor. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, I do think it's interesting that he watches his mom's floating body saw itself apart. And he's like, huh? And then it's that like, attic has the highest ceilings. Listen, that house, it's a wish house. My first thought when the naked people started showing up was, oh, no, ghosts. And then as the movie kept going, I'm like, oh, just. Naked people broke into the house. I think that's worse. Yeah, well, it's it, my buddies I was watching it with this time around were asking about cultists and they're like, are there robed cultists? And I was like, no robes. All, that, almost. And then they're like, I, are they I, naked? And I'm like, yep. I think the people, the naked old people in the attic are supposed to be dead because they're doing that thing that shows up throughout the movie of like whenever there's like half light in a room you can see these like ghosts of people maybe i mean joan is one of them so that's the thing that's weird and one of them is like the principal or the teacher or some shit i feel like if i went back they would all be like you could match them up to people that are in the funeral at the beginning yeah yeah so peter ollie's out and uh he seems to have broken down in the flower garden However, the spooky ghost light that has been haunting everybody that I haven't mentioned until now gets absorbed into his body and he wakes up. As more naked randos watch, he follows his mom's floating headless corpse into the treehouse. To the music of classical, Peter finds the treehouse occupied with prostrate naked cultists, including the headless corpses of his mom and grandma, bowing to an effigy with Charlie's head. Joan crowns Peter the Burger King as he is now possessed by Charlie and Payman. And he is like, okay, the end. Oh, and the dog dies. Fuck that. Mercifully, dog is killed off screen. But... Yeah, we sort of see a suggestion of the dog. I would like to think that dog is just sleeping. That I... dog is just taking a nap. I, I would He's also. Been that a dog is taking a nap. It was cute. It was He's an Australian fine. shepherd too. He is or... a big, fat, chubby, lovey doggy, and he's fine. So, let's talk. About some points, shall we? There are several. I do want to say before we get into any like really actually relevant points that having children, I do happen to know that there is this Cars short called Mater and the Ghost Light in which he is followed around by a ghost light, which turns out to be a, a lantern that's attached to his, his toe thing. But he runs around going, ah, the ghost light. Oh no, it's the ghost light. Ghost light, I respect thee. Return from where you came. And 
that's all I could think with the ghost light in this movie. <laughs> it's Mater going, ah, the ghost light. Is that uh, your recommendation then, Mater and the ghost light? I will never recommend a Cars film. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go around the horn here, and I guess everybody kind of bring your your one thing you really want to talk about to this. Uh, Greg, what is the one thing about Hereditary you really want to talk about? I, I don't know how much I can narrow down to one thing, but I, th- I think my primary take on this movie is that other horror stories have done this before. It's not revolutionary in that, that aspect, but I've never seen a better exploration of the relationship between sadness and fear. I feel like, you know, if fear is an emotion about the future, you're concerned about what's about to happen, what will happen someday. Sadness and specifically grief is being upset that something you were afraid was going to happen, happened. It's such an emotional movie. And I think it's because it's not just an intensely scary movie, but it's a deeply, deeply sad one as well. Yeah, Jeremy, you want to talk about upsetting sounds. Tony Collette screaming in anguish. Holy fucking Tony Collette, like, wail. Fiaster loves a good wail. Like, we'll talk about it again in two weeks when we talk about uh, uh, Midsummer. But, like, he loves people, like, just wailing in anguish. There was a scene where Peter is smoking with his friends under the bleachers and he starts having a panic attack. And at first, I thought the implication was he's now being, like, attacked by a ghost. And just like how Charlie was allergic to nuts, he is now allergic, like, magically, demonically allergic to weed. And I thought, oh, man, now this is scary. (laughs) Now, this is horror I can relate to. The depiction of PTSD in that scene, along with the scene in the in the classroom where they relate it directly to him in the car, because when he's in the car right after, like, he has the accident, he won't look back at his sister's body to see what's happened. So, like, there's just this shot of, like, directly out the front window where you're looking through his eyes and it sort of, like, creeps up to seeing just the edge of the like rear view mirror and then he jerks back down and then there's this like there's this scene later in the classroom where he's sitting there and he's watching and it like he starts to drift up a little bit and he sees the rear view mirror jerks his head back down and that scene was like incredibly evocative of PTSD and, and what that feels like, how it comes at you out of the blue. Yeah. So one thing with the nut out in, this is something I felt very strongly and personally about because my sister, who is three years younger than me, has a deadly nut allergy. And this is something where I'm like, fucking before any of this ghost stuff happens, before the sleepwalking, I almost murdered my son in, our, in my sleep stuff. That made me go like, oh, you are a bad fucking parent is the multiple times they went out or sent Charlie out without an EpiPen. Yeah. When, yeah. In you, when you have a child with an allergy that severe, they do not leave the house without an EpiPen. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The scene at the funeral where it first comes up where she is eating a chocolate bar and the dad goes, hey, there are nuts in that, right? And she goes, no, there's not no nuts. He's like, good, because I don't have an EpiPen. And then it continues to like be an issue through. 
like, we oh, are like, God, why God. is the response that, why is everyone's response not, why the fuck don't you have an EpiPen? Did you not have drive a fucking here? EpiPen. Don't you have a car? Yeah, 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 yeah. How yeah, hard like, is it to keep a goddamn EpiPen in your purse? It was also a little confusing that, like, they only seem to have one EpiPen that they keep in the house. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have a child with such severe allergies, don't you have multiple EpiPens, like, just in case? You like, should, one in, the, yes. one in the car, one at home, you know, one maybe in the kid's backpack at school. Yeah, I mean, money doesn't seem to be an issue for them, so, you know, I... I... Can't see there being a reasonable excuse for them not to. Yeah, other than this is me parents. yelling at Annie as a character within the movie. This is not me yelling at the movie. Annie being a bad parent is a fundamental part of the movie. I mean, just yes. want to get that clear in case yeah. you're misinterpreting my snarky yelling right now. No, she she is canonically Sir. a bad mom. There, yes, this is one of the core elements of this movie that makes me so angry. They talk about the hereditary trauma. Annie was going through trauma. She was abused by her family. She she has a family history of mental illness. As as far as we know. That is one of my questions, issues with this movie. There's a long history of in movies, mental illness projected as or horror misinterpreted as mental illness. And this one walks a real fine line. It like really walks right up to the line of me going, oh, no, this is fucked up. I can't enjoy this. They talk about her being mentally ill. She has she does sleepwalk. She has several issues. She does talk about the fact that her. Uh, let me see. I wrote it down. The, the mom had DID, but the dad had psychosis and starved because of his psychosis. And the brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia and left a. A suicide note blaming his mother for trying to put people in him, which it is revealed well, during the course of this movie. Well, did in fact, happen. Those are yeah, not I mean, mental illnesses. Those are things that she caused through her witchcraft. Uh, yeah. Like, I don't know about the dad or Annie herself, but the brother's suicide, given what we know from the movie, I think is definitely like the mom attempted to use the brother as the first as a host of Paimon and he killed himself to avoid that is definitely like, to me that isn't even subtext. Yeah. Well, and this whole thing with like Charlie should have been a boy and all this kind of stuff. This demon Lord is real into the gender binary. I, Oh yes. I hate that. And it's not just my like, oh, it's okay. It's okay to be sis. Like, you know, look, everyone should feel, like their body matches their gender identity. And for this demon lord, his identity is male. So look, the possession is bad, but I do want him to be his gender identity to match the, you know, be comfortable in yourself, Paimon. I get it. You know, if this movie was about Payman's like identity and tr- Payman, like Payman trying Paimon. to whatever, like Paimon. I'm, the, I'm naming him like he's a fucking Digimon. <laughs> yeah, Paimon, I choose you. They should have just I done that. I, All they needed not, is a fucking No, fucking not rock. Digimon, but okay. I know that's not Digimon, Brian. I'm not digi-illiterate. Gotta but, fetch um, them all, Digimon. I, <laughs> I fucking hate you. Listen, okay. <laughs> I'm about to go off. So Go off, Monarch. I, I w- thanks. Payman. If this movie was about Payman and how, like, Payman just wanted to, like, exist cool if this movie was about how 
some family was trying really hard to like invoke payment and they're you know like why they want to invoke payment other than like i guess he's a demon does it does cool get what grants wishes or whatever sure but this movie has this whole magical text that is really hard to combine with the mental illness subtext because they seem different it's like when jeremy you had the issue with the witch where there was this whole thing about like well there was a witch you know there was no there was very little question about that but in that movie it was a, even more like ambiguous You're like no the goat really is the devil and witches are a thing yeah well, yeah. i think the witch is a really interesting point of comparison side note i mentioned that hereditary is my favorite horror movie the witch is my second favorite horror movie but I think The Witch, like Hereditary, is also a movie where the monster that represents kind of all the bad things that the movie is exploring, in the case of The Witch, just the oppressiveness of puritanical lifestyle. Yeah. You know, you don't need the literal devil to show up in that movie to see you know just the damage that this culture is causing but it's a horror movie so he's there to represent that i think you're on the same beat like i think hereditary there is an argument for doesn't maybe also engage in that same degree of over literalization does the idea of exploring her heritage heredited pass on inherited uh, trauma mental illness and generational trauma is those themes less properly explored by virtue of also being flat out demonic possession. And my argument is no. I think when you're dealing with something like mental illness or inherited family trauma, whether or not those feelings are literally real at a certain point doesn't seem to matter. If you have an abusive parent, I'd imagine that whether or not they're literally trying to put demons inside of you kind of falls to the wayside when it's like, okay, maybe they're not literally like this cultist witch, but they're abusing me, you yeah. know? Or the same way where it's like, I am not dealing with the same degree of trauma or abuse as the people in this movie, but I am someone who, who has depression and anxiety. And it's like, you know, when, when I'm at the lowest of the low with a panic attack or something like that, there's nothing you could tell me in those moments where I'm really at my worst, where it's like, Greg, like the world is not actually ending. Doesn't matter. In the world of your mind, that's how it feels. It feels apocalyptic. Yeah. And, I th and again, this is... Uh, very much a movie about the nexus of how it feels to be mentally ill or to go through family trauma or all that kind of thing and what literally happens when you're dealing with that kind of thing if that makes sense i do think when it comes to the generational trauma it does seem like the main trauma was now present day just now happened trauma very current trauma but what I do think the movie just, you know, in the DNA of Annie as a character, what I think the movie did a good job of depicting is that, you know, when you come from a broken, abusive household, 
and you are then building your own household, you know, in terms of cycles, there is a degree of even when you want to do better, and even if you do manage to do a degree, like a degree better, you will always be hobbled by the fact that you didn't grow up with the tools. You didn't grow up with the communication yeah. to build like that non-abusive. I was like, it's it did a good job of showing how coming from an abusive household can maybe almost set you on like extra hard with your own relationships because even if you want a healthier relationship, you don't have that model of what a healthier relationship looks like. Yeah, but I feel like they did too much of the weird demon witch shit. Like, I feel like they, with adding any sort of demon witch I feel witch like shit, this is a landmark occasion where Emily said, I think they did too much of the weird demon witch. Yeah, like, <laughs> sure, I know, right? Like, because I'm thinking about this movie and I think about how, like, masterfully this movie depicts how it feels to just be anxious have anxiety and have that dread when you're in the in a really bad place whether it be anxiety or depression or whatever but you have that sense of dread no matter what's going on it could you could be watching fucking my little pony and it still feels like the same music from this movie is going on in your head and you're just like i'm gonna die i'm gonna die and you know nothing good is happening and all of your worst nightmares are coming true even though none of that is actually happening to you it feels like it hey fun fact for all you comic readers out there, Jeremy does listen to the soundtrack when writing My Little Pony comics. Yes, the soundtrack of just horrible screeching and constant yeah. drumming in the background. Yeah, I, I listen I think... to that anyway, but just as normal. <laughs> this is what it sounds it's like. It's the official theme of Rainbow Dash. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like to watch this movie while experiencing any of the feelings that, you know, Annie has as a character in this film because this film takes the idea that like you feel paranoid you feel dread you feel bad all of these things that are feelings are absolutely fucking correct yeah I always give a massive content warning when re recommending this movie to people and, and people think I'm messing around just teasing how scary it is I mean it is the scariest movie I've ever seen but like I tell people, if you are in any kind of a bad place emotionally, do not watch it. The first time I saw it, it was opening weekend. I saw it kind of accidentally because my friend and I had plans to see Solo, the Star Wars movie. Very and by yeah, and we yeah we were in a good mood. By the time by the time we got there, it was sold out. My friend was like, "Ah, oh, you want to see Deadpool too?" I was like, "Ah, oh, all right, saw Deadpool too." And so we were both disappointed, but we were in a pretty good mood before we just randomly were like, oh, okay, fine, there's this new horror movie out. Fine, you know, probably gonna be whatever. And then I was in for the scariest moment of my life. Yeah, this film reinforces the fact that like, yes, this one person that she meets at this, you know, grief group that she turns to and puts any sort of trust in, the only person that she reaches out to for any sort of help in this movie is horrible, is working for the the literal devil to get her to put together this ritual to, I mean, literally teaches her how to, without knowing it, summon the devil into her house so that this stuff can go on. Also, if somebody gives you something weird in Latin to read, don't do it. Yeah. You know what it means? Don't do it. You seen fucking Army of Darkness? Jesus. 
you know, so many horror movies play with like, oh, is this horror thing real? Is it in someone's head? It's almost always real, but still, it's almost always a binary choice. And this movie takes the unique track of Porque no los dos. Yes. Which I feel is to its detriment in this particular case, especially because of what is depicted in terms of Charlie and how Charlie is treated like a flawed body. She has so much going on for her as a character with that is neurodivergent, that is dealing with dysphoria. You know, I saw her character and I was really excited because I heard this movie was about like witches and she's also on the the fucking card for the movie is her and Tony Collette. So I was like, all right, let's do it. And she, you know, dies in act one and is referred to as a mistake. And that was really upsetting to me. That grandma kept telling her that she should have been a boy, even though she was closest with that grandma. But I think it was more of like a dependency, you know, well, wait, a they, toxic they have relationship some lore around that, which again is a, a place where like, okay, the stuff that's in this movie from a, psychological mental perspective conflicts with the stuff that's in it from a supernatural perspective because Tony Collette says when she had her son she was estranged from her mom wouldn't let her mom see the the kid you know she didn't have anything to do with the raising of, of this kid and then you know she had reconciled to some extent with her when she had Charlie and the mom like this is a thing that is not given enough attention in the movie but is said by her and then depicted later on in one of her little murals the mom and like the grandma insisted on breastfeeding charlie herself yeah um and like yeah that was in one of the miniatures because she says feed when she's in the like grief thing and i was like does she mean breastfeed or does she mean bottle feed and then when the miniature pops up of her mom there's a miniature of her in bed and her mom breastfeeding the baby Oh, yep. uh, I, I, like, I, I did oh. not catch that. Wow. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I interpreted that as bottle feed, too. And I am going to continue to interpret it that in the face of objective reality. Yeah, I mean, and that's some that's some black magic devil bullshit kind of stuff, too. Like, that is exactly the sort of thing that, you know, shows up in those sorts of stories is, you know, she's suckled at the witch's teeth to, you know, become a vessel for the demon. And like. I think that's like the explanation for why the grandma says she should have been a boy. Because yeah. He's the only one the grandma has access to. And the grandma knows Paimon wants a yeah. male body. He doesn't have the ding dong. He's not into it. And so like, which, I think that's I gotta the say, like, there, which then leads into the psychological trauma that is directly affected by the supernatural stuff. Yeah. And I don't think that like, I feel like it cheapens the whole, the discussion when it is so like, when it is thus crossed like there are ways that it doesn't cheapen you know i've seen it like i don't know that it cheapens it but i do think it confuses it like i do think in terms of just a villain for the movie payment just you know wanting a ding dong like body yeah that's what i'm going with ding dong body it's not a penis having body a body that has a penis yeah presumably we're saying the same deal that's not as interesting a motivation as Charlie, this very developed and already dark impulse shown having character, you know, haunting and wanting revenge on like 
the absolute PTSD does all fuck like brother who she blames for her death. There's all of the supernatural stuff in this movie really like it does confuse the issue. And I think that that does. Well, there's the supernatural of what brings Charlie back post death. And then there's everything involving a hell demon, a hell cult. You know what I mean? Like there's the ghost aspect and then there's the like I'm on board for the ghost aspect and I'm a little less on board for the hell cult yeah like if it was just weird ghost lights and like that whole bit where she's standing in the room and then her head falls off and becomes a ball like that shit was fucking on point oh loved the head fall off into the ball yeah yeah like also you know what they do set up the hell cult pretty early on with like being surprised at how crowd the funeral is like the desecration which when that finally came back i'm like oh yeah like that's a real humdinger of a of a lead that's led out there is like like the third scene of the movie, Gabriel Byrne gets that call that you only hear the one side of, which is what do you mean desecrated? Yeah. <laughs> then yeah. That's not picked up for at least half an hour. Talk about burying the lead. It's, it's like, oh, desecrated. I'm like, oh, so someone did some graffiti on a tombstone. No, fucking full on body is gone if we could just back up a, a second about uh the uh cult aspect of the movie to me it is part and parcel with the theme of the movie or one of the themes of the movie being how much do you really know about your deceased family members and a big part of that is who did they know that you have no idea existed, no idea what the nature of their relationship was, no idea what they may have been saying to those people about you. I mean, you know, I understand some of this might sound kind of basic. I I just feel like the movie would not be making as strong a statement as it is if you didn't have that whole aspect of, oh, grandma was in this demonic cult with all these people who she never talked about but you were a big part of their plans. Yeah, I gotta say, dad had a second family is really mild when you compare mom was in a secret demon cult and her girlfriend from this cult is now gaslighting you into having your own child possessed by a demon. That's way bigger. So here's where I think the movie might have a little too much going on. It puts so much on charlie and her death and the effect that has on peter and annie and peter's relationship that you don't get a ton of focus on annie and her mother's relationship like like what happened with annie's mother is almost an afterthought by the like once charlie dies well i'm not sure if i agree with that because that monologue that she gives when she goes to the um group therapy for people experiencing grief you know it's not just about what we literally hear annie saying about all these horrible things that her mother did and the weird uncomfortable nature of their relationship you get the sense from that scene that this is really the first time annie has said any of this out loud and this is you know we were talking before about just how utterly brilliant Tony Flett's performances in this film. I mean, that it comes through so clearly in her hesitation to save this and the way that that the information just kind of bursts out of her in the way people sound when they tell a secret or they're telling somebody something that they 
never perhaps even thought to tell another human. The way she's like getting winded well, during that speech. Yeah. Like, yeah. Tony Collette is a tour de force. It, and it, like, it, yeah. Look, I'm not saying I didn't really love the movie. And I get where you're coming from. But Greg, you're never going to convince me that it didn't have a little too much going on for it to properly tackle. No, that's I, that's that's fair. The, the the one thing I do see, I am with you guys on in terms of trying to tackle too much, having too many themes. I will say, I think the gender stuff doesn't really land the way it should because it's not. It's never really clear what the movie is trying to say. I have some theories that we can talk about. But just that general idea of Paymon or Payman preferring a male body to a female body, you know, to be very crass about how we use phrases like that, it's never really explored the way that it should be. I will say, however, we were talking before. Again, ding dong haver is the appropriate scientific term. Sorry, ding dong haver. That, you know, n- next time I'm filling out a form. And uh, they ask for my, my gender. I'm not going to say male. I'm going to say ding dong haver. I am a straight cis ding dong haver. <laughs> Sorry, that's too much information. We could cut that out. We could cut that out. No, no. But uh, what I was going to say before that, we were talking about how, you know, it's kind of a tragedy that Charlie's character dies so quickly because she's so interesting. I feel like Ari Aster was trying to grasp at something there with the different kind of hurdles that boys and girls have to go through. Because Charlie is creative, perhaps to a disturbing degree at certain points. Charlie, you know, she she certainly has a more uh, interesting personality than the rest of her family in certain respects. And that's not who Payman wants. He wants this pothead slacker dude who doesn't want to prepare for the SATs well, who does want to prepare for the SATs? Those are a drag. Well, sure, but the character he reminds me of most is uh, Anthony Jr. from The Sopranos. In the, I don't know if any of you have watched The Sopranos. Yes, but it's I know kind the character. Of, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like Tony Soprano was cursed with having like this total mediocre loser son in some ways. To put it very crassly. And that's the energy that I get from Peter. There's nothing really special about him, but he's going to get by to a certain degree because he's a boy. Peter is just the most teenage boy. Like his two introductory moments are sleeping in and staring at a girl's ass. Like those are his two establishing character moments. I mean, which honestly, who hasn't? But you know, like, I, I do think it's one of those things where, like, this movie is not prepared to talk about Paimon gender essentialism. Um, nope. There's this weird in-between point where it's like, okay, we could be saying one of a couple of things here. One being that, like, you know, the girl isn't good enough, which I don't think is what Ari Aster is after. The other possibility is this real dicey MRA-sounding idea that, like, is sort of sitting on the edge of this when you start thinking about like what is implied to have happened to Tony Collette's brother and father. And that like this woman, this witch is literally just using men as disposable vessels for this, uh, this demon. It has no 
emotional connection whatsoever to any of the men in her life even the ones she's related to and like there's this whole sector of mra about men being disposable and you know being sent off to wars and thrown away and everything that like really hits on the same note that this ends up hitting on i don't think it's what he meant to do but like once you get those details about like what this ritual actually is and you apply that to like oh this must be what also happened to her father and brother i don't think i like what this implies when you put it all together yeah this movie to me is a very beautiful very well made very incredibly evocative depiction of its falling on its own face to me just as long as that face isn't the decapitated fly eating charlie face on a mannequin yeah, I mean, like, Which that's part of the will be in my nightmares for quite some time. No, like, the, that's the thing, is that it's like watching this beautiful, incre- like, it's like Woman Descending Staircase by Duchamp, you know? You have this very, very simple, monotone thing that is depicted so beautifully. I shouldn't say simple, because it's dread, but that's complex. It does dread really well. And it has this dreamlike quality that really underscores that with the acting and the the sound design and the editing and production, all is stellar. The story is confused as fuck. Like, when I'm trying to figure out what's going on, like, what this movie is trying to say, I have, like, a million straws in front of me and I'm grasping at them. The witchcraft thing feels very deliberate. And then I know all the stuff about where they got the the source material. Like, so Emily's demon facts. Payman is a is a uh, I believe a duke of hell. Hold on, let me look at my notes. Um, they say prince in the movie, but yeah. Uh, Don't they say king? He's one of the nine kings of hell. Eight kings of hell, I believe. Eight kings of hell. I don't know how many kings of hell there are. I, I was under the impression before the that there was just one very famous king of hell but i don't know well you got the the, well you got the nine circles of hell if you go to dante and then you got the grimoires with the 72 demon lords so it it's a whole fucking thing well there was the one king and then he went mad and all the seven kingdoms rose up to overthrow him and then uh you know there's still one king but there's like the king of the north and then you know they're all sort of on their own to some extent it's a real game of thrones situation down in hell Man, as if hell wasn't bad enough, you got to deal with politics. All right, look, what happened was John Constantine got diagnosed with lung cancer. So he just started making a bunch of deals with different (laughs) devils. And then there's a wall at the north end of hell and past that is Scotland. Um, Right. I mean, but there's also Scotland is what I mean. So, yes, payment is a, a duke of hell. He is depicted as a demon, a male demon with a woman's face, rides a camel and is heralded by a trumpet. But, you know, I'm going to be real with y'all. The artist Goetia, a.k.a. the Lesser Key of Solomon, is all just of Jewish history and folklore. So, yeah, that's our shit. Well, yeah. our Yasser is Jewish. Yeah. So, that's I mean, true. that's the Ars Goetia is just we... basically some, some Christian guys appropriating ancient Hebrew texts about like gin and shit now we don't also we never see a camel except for in the one image of payment which i feel is a little bit of a shorthanded 
That's a lot to put into budget. They they made this one on the cheap. You're not getting camels under ten million dollar, but under ten million dollars. Could have been swerving around a camel. That would have been weird. I mean, I. But that would have been very weird. That would have been amazing. Imagine going to Utah and seeing a camel. I mean, I I would have needed an entire other movie to explain where the fuck it came from. Someone's Tiger King had a camel. Also, someone musically inclined, make a demonology with Emily Jingle for us to run. Quinn, that's your, the segment. Quinn's, Quinn. Payment, I believe, is also Pokemon. Payment's also in Genshin Impact and nope. in Payment uh, is not Persona. In Pokemon. Persona, yeah, that makes sense. I'm not no, going to look it up, but yeah. I believe that Payment is in Persona. Persona, what's the other one? Shimagama Tensei, oh, you know, they, but they all like take shit out of um, Ars Goetia because it's like... Yeah, that, that's, at, have, that's Atlas's whole deal. Yeah, and then like... If you find Colin DePlancy's dictionary in Fernal, it has a lot of articles about the demons of the Goetia. It has these the really funny images of them with like horse faces and stuff, and they're all like really cute and highly recommended. That's my recommendation. So Payment has their two dudes, her his wives, and he's supposed to look like a girl. And the fact that there was all this other shit added, like the body shit, the fact that Charlie being a girl was a problem enough for Payment. You know, and I feel like that would have been another conversation that would have been less confusing and less problematic. This movie's this movie makes me angry. I think the idea was they wanted Peter from the beginning, but Annie was like keeping him completely away. They were like, okay, Charlie's the best we have, and that was like, we'll just make do. Or at what point exactly they were like, all right, Operation Dead Grandmas, deal the older brother body like i don't know how premeditated that was also question do we interpret that gabriel byrne knew it was bullshit from the beginning every single time like from the start when annie said i'm going to the movies because otherwise it bothered me so much that he never asked what she was seeing i interpreted it as yes he knew it was bullshit that's insane i I interpreted it as him having the same detachment in that bit as he seems to have in the entire rest of the movie, which yeah. is like, he seems to think that she is like dangerously dealing with psychosis and things like that. And she, he seems to think that she is not trustworthy, but he doesn't do anything to protect his son. He also doesn't do anything to like help her. This is the thing I hate most in the movie is like this guy is he fucking sucks. useless. He sucks. Oh, Gabriel Burns fucking useless in this movie. But again, the movies, like, imagine you go into work, co-worker says, hey, how was your weekend? You say, good, I went out, I saw a movie, and they don't ask, what did you see? Yeah. yeah. No, You'd it's... be like, the fuck is this? I'm reporting, you would report that person to HR for being a psychopath. This motherfucker is a psychologist, I guess. What does he, he has do no way... other than psychology? Because he's never around. And he doesn't do anything to help her. He doesn't do anything to help him. He doesn't volunteer to like watch Charlie since yeah. clearly like Annie doesn't want to watch him and the and he, she doesn't want to go to this party. Gabriel Byrne is never even suggested in that. Like he's that sort of like 50s style father that it's like, oh, I mean, dads don't watch out for kids. That's another thing that dads would do. Um, yeah, he's like Finn Wolfhard's dad in Stranger Things, whose only character trait is incredibly negligent to his whole family. I th- I thought in in some ways he's actually weirdly comparable to not to get ahead of ourselves, 
the boyfriend in Midsummer, yeah. in the way that like have he, not seen. I will take your word for it. Have not seen it yet. I, I promise you, I am not going to spoil it. I promise you, I won't spoil it. But just in the way that this is a guy who really seems to think that just because he has this calm demeanor and doesn't like raise his voice or do anything that outwardly seems aggressive makes him like a virtuous person when it's like no like you need to actually get aggressive here about protecting your family yeah nobody in this family communicates anything whatsoever nobody says anything the way that everyone processes things is incredibly personal you know and not very real like that's not a yeah. problem with yeah. the movie so much as a problem with a particular type of family oh absolutely and i but i feel like well why the fuck would you call the movie hereditary because this is the trauma that this situation like the, the trauma seems like outside you know yeah there's hereditary shit going on but the biggest monster in this movie is this family's inability to communicate with each other and then when they finally do it's when everything comes to a head and they're either yelling or fucking going on seance fugues i mean that is in itself hereditary like the inability to communicate yes because yeah, yeah. You know, the, the yeah. grandmother we learn didn't communicate at all with her daughter uh despite being part of some seemingly all female driven demon cult did not not ever invite her daughter to be part of this cult um, <laughs> rude yeah. rude honestly not, not much into recruiting voluntarily just you know just destroying yeah, men thinking about the actual like possibilities of the situation that's where things fall apart for me where i'm like these people just suck like the more angry i get at these people <laughs> the more i'm like what the fuck you could have had this you could have a cool witch child that's like i'm gonna now make an effigy with a pigeon head and pray satan is that a thing you want yes Je jeremy as someone with children do you encourage pigeon head effigy making or would you maybe just recommend legos i mean they can draw the pigeon head. Maybe make a pigeon head out of Legos if it's really down to it. But yeah, Look, not, not so much beheading I've, pigeons. But then I don't have a cult that apparently drives pigeons to kill themselves against windows near my, my child so that they can. That you know of. That I know of. I get, this is how you fucking raise the bar. I'm watching that scene. Creepy kid is eating chocolate and just looking at a dead bird. Creepy. You could have done. You could have just ended it right there and been like, "Yeah, there's something weird about this kid." Fucking oh, Charlie pulls right. out a big pair of scissors and just starts crying. I'm like, "Oh, oh so damn!" I interpreted that by that point in the movie, Charlie was already in the process of being possessed by the demon. I thought she was just cool. Like she was just making cool shit. I guess no, it's because I, I, I grew that's up ritualistic. Like. She seems not surprised by the fact that this bird flies up and slams itself against the window and kills itself. And then she's like, well, let me go collect that and make it into an effigy as part of this ritual. I mean, because we, we have several things in there. And that's the thing to me is it's not really clear with Charlie where Charlie turns because we do see the like point where she's walking out into the, you know, just out into wherever the fuck it is they live. And there's somebody like burning a sigil on the lawn. And mom doesn't see this. Mom comes out and picks her up and is not like, why is that woman fucking burning something into my lawn? She's like, well, how dare you come out here with her shoes on? It's like, oh, I interpret it as 
that was only seen by by Charlie. Yeah, that, that, that was that, Charlie's yeah. vision. Like it was a dream yeah. sequence kind of thing. And also in terms of turned, I interpret it as Charlie has been possessed by Heyman since near birth. That like whatever soul there is and Charlie was almost always Payman. That's really yeah. problematic to me. I do think it's worth noting that even though the 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 movie itself ended up being a real swerve, if you recall the way it was marketed in the original trailers, it was marketed like a creepy kid movie with yeah. Charlie being the creepy kid. The actual movie, I would not describe that way. I didn't know how supernatural it was going in. So when she just starts cut, like pulling out the scissors and cutting off the pigeon heads and like taking it home, I'm like, Oh, we're getting like the Enola Holmes of Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> I listen. Maybe it's my neurodivergence showing. Maybe it's my paganism showing. Maybe it's just like the fact that I collected dead shit when I was little. For me, there was not really anything creepy, inherently creepy about that, other than like the fact that this music was going on. I mean, it was unusual, but she always seemed so sad. And like that was what, where I was involved in that character because I'm like, She's sad, but also she's doing stuff about it. Like, she's drawing about yeah. it. She's making creatures about it. We I'm know. with you on the drawing, but once we started cutting heads off corpses... She didn't kill the pigeon. Like, if, that, if that's, she killed that's, the pigeon... That's a good point. Yeah, if she killed the pigeon, did, I'd be like... She mm, didn't kill the pigeon. No, that, that's she's upcycling. Yeah. Like, she's, she's just, like, <laughs> thinking... Oh, okay, you know, I'm haunted is because of reasons, you know, and... To be fair, the reasons that she's haunted are pretty hereditary. I do think we should talk about the motif of beheadings, though, since we were talking so much about the bird. I don't know if there's like a real world thing to compare this to, but, you know, after the grandmother dies and she's discovered in the attic, we find out that the cultists had cut her head off. Then you have this bird whose head gets cut off. There and it's like the, you know these this spirit of Amon is like passing through all these other vessels. And next, of course, goes to Charlie, who very memorably gets her head chopped off. You have Annie sawing her own head off until finally it gets to Peter. And there's this period with all these characters where the character who is about to have their head chopped off goes through this very uncomfortable period before the demon is ultimately going to where he wants to go. Oh, man, the piano wire decapitation. Like, this, like just from a pure, like, blood, you know, revel and bloodshed aspect, this movie had some great fucking kills. Like, memorable, gory, creative. The piano wire decapitation. Gabriel Byrne going up in fire. Fucking allergy swerve telephone pole decapitation like just some some of the most wild and shocking kills i've ever seen and, and you know movie. what so the, good stuff the one kill that what did not result in a decapitation was gabriel burr because he was not a concern to payment he was not part of the whole chain of the spirit passing from body to body so he you know he died in a completely different way I do wonder if Alex is supposed to die when he falls out the window because he falls out yes, the window the and then stays is... still. Then we see yeah. the like spirit light go into him and then he gets up. And from that point on, he's Charlie. So, so that's yeah. very much what I interpreted. 
because and also because before then his eyes is very red and bloodshot and then after that his eyes like white and normal and they also so i I definitely yeah (laughs) i swear to god gabriel Byrne goes up in flames and you can almost hear just hear a demon voice go like lol (laughs) (laughs) yeah thought you could get out of it a while ago there there was a prompt tweet going around uh it was like what's the hottest a person has ever looked in a movie and i tweeted gabriel burn on fire (laughs) yeah i i I don't like the gabriel burn stuff in this because he doesn't really feel like a fully realized character like the rest of them are like we don't know what he's doing when he's not on screen you know he doesn't seem to do things or care or have hobbies or like like his family or anything like that which which really bothers me you know and i i think we'll talk about a little bit in a couple weeks that i think ari aster has a habit of the male characters just have no interiority it would be (laughs) exception of alex but like you know in midsummer we'll see a lot of that too where it's like what's actually going on with these dudes but I, i i do think it's interesting i was going through some of the like uh trivia about this movie and emily mentioned like nobody talking in this movie but apparently the original cut was almost three hours and almost all that was cut is dialogue oh between the family so oh my god at some point hours. they talked more i don't know if it would have been better yeah i think it would have really diluted the point of this movie about family that doesn't communicate effectively if we saw the communicating more even if ineffectively i, mean, I don't know yeah, what that footage was like. Yeah. I figured it out. I figured out why it's payment. Wait, on us. Suddenly now that you've saved the movie because the real monster is denial and payment comes from Egypt. Yeah, that'll do it. At least this is mm. where you put the sad trombone in. <laughs> 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 now the supernatural shit has meaning. Yo, now we're done with that. We're done with the recommendations. I think we're just calling it with that one. <laughs> night, every night, everybody. <laughs> you know, I think we we talked quite a bit about it, and we've addressed most of our points. Like, it's legitimately difficult to tell whether, say, this movie is feminist because it's really difficult <laughs> it's to separate the suffering and perspective of Tony Collette or Tony Collette, which is the central perspective of this movie, from say. The fact that this movie is in the background about an evil witch cult full of women that are intentionally having their loved ones. Well, the we by do Paimon. see men in the cult too. I got, I just got to point that they're, out. They're inactive members. They're yeah, they're, they're window dressing. I don't think this movie is feminist in a progressive politics way. But I do think there is something to be said for this movie letting itself be led and grounded by an incredibly complex and incredibly flawed three-dimensional woman character dealing with, you know, very complicated takes on motherhood and fears around it. So, you know, not progressively politics feminist, but I do give it a certain amount of credit just for having a character as strong as Tony Collette's Annie. I feel That's like... A point. That's a good uh, point. I, I can't argue with any of that, but I will say... I think Ari Aster was trying to be feminist and perhaps didn't quite make the mark. But I, I feel like an attempt, <laughs> uh, un, unlike some of some other horror movies out there, 
that just do not try at all. You know, this is no Friday the 13th. This is no Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, Although that is the father character that the dad in this reminds me of is the dad from Friday the 13th. Or not Friday the 13th. It's the dad from Nightmare on Elm Street that this reminds me of. Who Mm. is a cop who specifically does not help at all or listen to anything that his wife or daughter say. Don't we also have a useless cop dad in Halloween, too? It's a useless cop best friend's dad in Halloween. Oh, the, yeah. you know what? That reminds me of, like, one of my favorite lines that Tony Collette has in the movie is when she just straight up says, the police can't help us, knowing how both horror movies and the real world work. Also knowing that there's a dead body in her attic that she has no explanation for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Ixnay on the mysterious corpse. Yeah. Gabriel Byrne, I'm going to call the cops to solve this dead body in our attic problem. You're like, I know how that's going to go. To be fair, at least it is objectively a movie, a body that everyone knows was dead beforehand. So at worst, you're looking at grave robbing charges and not murder charges. I'm impressed by the amount of hand waving that went into like the death of the daughter. And how Peter somehow, like, just continued with school, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Peter, who is just so traumatized, should just so be doing nothing but all of the therapy. Yeah, it's funny, because I was watching this with buddies, and they were both like, why is he not in jail or something? And I'm like, they need to press charges, you know, there's processing, all that kind of stuff. And they're like, I don't think he gets a free murder pass. And then they find out, like, they see what happened to him and, like, what his family's like. And then they were like, okay, well, maybe. Okay, well, maybe. I can see how he gets a free pass on this one just from how fucked up everybody is all the time. I'm not sure what it would have been. I mean, I guess there would I mean, have I been think some it's level. manslaughter. It is manslaughter and reckless driving. There were... I guess mitigating fat between the deer and the allergic reaction. I guess you do have a certain degree of mitigating factors. I don't know. Let's ask Legal Eagle to review Hereditary. There's an interesting aspect of this whole thing we're talking about. I hadn't really considered before rewatching the movie with my sister. It was her first time because she was like, everyone's concerned about like how the parents are coping. Nobody is really checking in on this teenager who accidentally killed his own sister because we we just recently saw Megan, which is a completely different kind of horror movie. And it's like, there's a real thing in horror movies now that I'm thinking about it, where other characters within the movie do not really treat someone's death of their sibling as like a serious thing that you need to like check in on them for. Like, look, I'm not a parent. I cannot imagine how horrible it would be to lose a child but you know i'd be pretty devastated if something happened to one of my siblings and yeah. i would hope that people would be like hey greg y- you doing okay like you know if you want to wait to take the sats so you could process this <laughs> you know we'd understand and nobody ever checks in on laurie strode to see how she's doing all the times her brother dies yeah oh i will say right. this with I will say this about the movie and about people checking in on Peter. Everybody, I'm pretty sure everybody in the background of that movie was part of the cult because I know the teacher was there. So I think that's why nobody was like really, you know, everyone was like, all right, things are going to plan. He's traumatized. Okay. Hopefully we can just crush the soul so utterly that we can overwrite it with something else, which is like, you know, as a thing in a horror movie about possession, sure. 
as a meaningful conversation about mental illness. Oof. I have a lot of opinions about this movie, and I've said some of them. And we do not have the time and space for all of them, and I'm at peace with that. And that's fine, because, you know, I'd probably repeat myself anyway. But There's a lot of ways in which this movie reminds me of us talking about David Cronenberg movies, and there being points where it's like, I know what the theme of this movie is, but also, I think maybe David Cronenberg is going through something that he's trying to work through. Which yeah. Is, is oh, how, yeah. How this movie feels with Ari Aster as well. Like, oh, Cronenberg wore his heart on his sleeve. Going on with Ari Aster. Yeah, I hope Ari, life. big ups. Hope you're okay. I'll check in on you. I'll ask you if you're okay. I'm not enough trying to make you a demon. I hope Ari Aster has a professional that he's talked to about his mother. Is all well, I'm going to say. I, I, I also hope that because this is something else I noticed in, in my. This was my third viewing of the movie because for some godforsaken reason in the beginning of the pandemic, I chose to rewatch this movie as well. It's not just that Annie and these other characters like actively are not getting support from the people around them. It's like Annie specifically is not depicted as having friends. Yeah. She has no... No, Annie does not have friends. And, and so in terms of the whole mental health aspect of the movie, that's something I find really fascinating. It's the horror of having something terrible happen to you and having nobody to talk to about it, including your family. And so, you know, maybe you turn to just the, the literally the first lady you meet at a group therapy session who reaches out to you and invites you to her home for coffee and a casual sale. Yeah. You know, yeah, as think, you do. I think, you know, Alex is shown as, as having some, like, stoner friends early on. But, like, but by the fuck. time he gets to where, like, he's seeing and hearing things, like, there's nobody sitting with him at that lunch table. Like, you know, they have abandoned him. Yeah. None of these characters have people they can talk to. And I think, I think that's very intentional. Yes. Uh, in terms of movie. It's the horror of feeling isolated in your griefs. Yeah, that's valid. And that's, you know, that's something worth talking about. I do think that this is objectively a really well-made film. I think that, you know, talking about it as much as I'm angry about it is really good. And I, I think that this movie is worth seeing because it is so... Are you okay, Jeremy? Yeah. No, I was, <laughs> we're just, I was we're just, just holding on to like... The point, the point in this movie where it unsettled me and also became incredibly interesting to me is approximately 30 seconds in where it zooms in on the dollhouse and you zoom into the one room of the dollhouse and then the dad walks in, like yeah. walks into the room in the dollhouse and it's the, the movie. Like, yeah, I was like that. Oh, yeah, that was great. Incredible. Yeah, that, that was, was a really great shot super well done like there's so much good shit going on in this movie it's just it denies me so many things that i want personally objectively this is a fantastically made film i wish the the writing was better at the end i before before we wrap up and i don't know how close we are to that i do just want to tell a quick story just to illustrate how scary this movie was yeah. to me the first time i saw it so i was living in brooklyn at the time but i was visiting my parents in new jersey again you know, had plans to see a movie with a friend. And, uh, you know, we had kind of that awkward moment at the end where, we, you know, we just saw something that 
gave a psychological damage. Like, like I, I'm not saying traumatized, but like we were more than just scared, and we had to be just go into our supper cars and be like, "Okay, have a good night." <laughs> and and so I'm I'm driving home late at night. I have the music on very loud because if the music's loud enough, the demons can't hurt me. And I suddenly got this feeling of fear so intense that literally like two minutes from my parents' house, I had to pull over into a 7-Eleven and just like buy like a chips or something so I could be in light (laughs) and not let, you know, any of the however many kings of hell there are get to me like that's how intense the fear was and then i got back to my parents house and i was in um my childhood bedroom or closest thing to it because we moved when i was a senior in high school that's a whole other story and i just sat there motionless like upright like i don't mean like i was crying to sleep i can't sleep i mean i sat there with the lights on fully clothed upright on my bed just kind of thinking about life for what felt like two hours, just contemplating things. You need to go skip some rocks across a pond somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like that That is the image of like looking at the sand, just looking up. Like Um, we could break down all all the, the themes of the movie and what does right and what does wrong in terms of what it has to say about these themes. But, like, on just this raw, primal level, it hit me in this way that made me really stop to think about, why did this movie scare me? What in my life do I consider? What do I really fear? And not just in a horror movie way, but in a life way. And again, that's why this is my favorite horror movie, because great horror makes you almost go through this kind of exorcism and I did not come up with the idea. I think Wes Craven said something like that uh, where you, you know, you, you come out of it feeling like you've learned something about yourself. Yeah. That's incredibly profound, honestly. And I think that that is why I consider it a, a objectively fantastic film. Like when I first saw this movie, I was more preoccupied with how upset it made me feel. Yeah. I, it's it's really interesting to me because the movie that I've seen that I feel like this is the most like, both in, in how it makes me feel at points and the way it's constructed and, and how well it's put together is The Babadook. But I have mm-hmm. such profoundly different reactions to those two movies. The yeah. Babadook is a movie that like I could go on for hours about how much I love and how how perfect it is. And Hereditary is a movie that I aggressively dislike despite like knowing that it's masterful, knowing that it's really yeah. well made and that my apprehension for it and my dislike of it is the sign that it's well made. It's the sign that mm-hmm. it's a good movie in the way that every drama and writing teacher i ever had is like yeah, it provokes a feeling in you and that means it's important um that means it's doing a good thing um nobody knows what it means but it makes you feel things that, that's my other note because my other note is the place where i think these two things depart from me is will ferrell saying <laughs> is will ferrell saying nobody knows what it means 
but it's provocative. It gets the people going. Like, yeah, that's what I feel <laughs> that's like hereditary. Aster hit with this is like nobody knows what it means. We don't know what the what the actual story is. The plot happens entirely off screen in this movie. It's all vibes. Yeah, um, yeah. But like nobody Big knows what it's about. But it's provocative. It gets the people going. Makes you think. Yeah. That's how I feel about David Lynch sometimes. <laughs> that said, the one other thing I want to say is uh, despite every chance it could have and seems like it should have, this movie has nothing to say about queer people at all. And it nope. occurs in Utah <laughs> and has exactly the number of black people you'd expect in it. There's, there's very little non-white people. There are a couple of black people in the background at the party, and that's about it. So, like, as far as any other progressive politics, that's as far as they go. Yeah, I so, mean, I feel like the most diversity we have is Alex Wolf is tan. Yeah. yeah. yeah Alex Wolf. Where did those genes yeah. come from, though? Well, 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 he, well I know he's Jewish, too, like Ari Aster. Uh, yeah, that he, does not play a, into the movie at all. He, okay. He's a good Jewish boy. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so the question remains, guys, would we recommend people go check this movie out? This movie once. It makes sure you are in a healthy state of mind. Maybe make sure that, that you have someone to talk to afterwards. You, you know, there, there's absolutely no shame in waiting to watch this movie or maybe never watching this movie at all if you don't think you can handle it. I mean that sincerely. But you are in for a unforgettable and, if you're like me, literally life-changing experience if you do feel brave enough to take this journey. Just hold on to your butts. I would say, what I would say about this movie is the scene of Charlie's death and the scene at the party leading up to that are some of the most, for me, traumatic moments I've seen put on film. They are so difficult to watch and so hard to get out of your head afterwards that like, yeah, from an artistic standpoint, that's good. That means they did a good job. This girl is acting her absolute ass off in this scene. Oh my Um, God. And she's trying so hard to just be a good sister and not bother people for so long until she literally can't not say anything. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. And then it ends in such a like abrupt fashion, which I didn't talk about this yet, but like literally the first time I watched this movie, I was like, what just happened? Like, I don't understand what just happened. I have to go back and watch this scene again because I don't like, there's no way what I thought just happened happened. And the real trick of this movie is if you give it another minute, you'll see that it did happen because they, they talk about it's, this was in the top five of shutters, hundred scariest moments in movies. Number um, three. They yeah. That. Yeah. This where like he, cause the scene where she dies, he then goes back and like lays down on the bed and you hear the reaction of Tony Collette finding the body without actually seeing it. And then it, Cuts to oh, her it's, it's insect so well executed head on the roadside. Oh, and it's like, you don't think they're going to show it. You think that they've just glossed over this and they're they're going to like do a discretion shot, which is the opposite of that. It is. And, yeah. And, and, it, it and, and yet you're not ready for it anymore. 
And yet, at the same time, one of the things I think makes this movie as brilliant as it is, is that it doesn't pull punches, but it's not cheap. It's not exploitative. You know, this isn't torture porn. This isn't Saw or anything like, like, like that, where the point is the gore and the shock. It, 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 there's almost like a mathematical perfection to the way that it doles out these shocking moments and then just leaves you to sit with them. Yeah, I, have, I was not nearly as bothered as what is it saw too, where the girl is crawling around trying to find something in a pit full of rusty needles. Oh, like, yeah, I was that's not nearly a, as that, bothered by that as I was by watching this girl like suffocate in the backseat of this car. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I mean, I've only seen the first Saw movie, and yeah, that, I, that's my only point of comparison with the torture porn genre because I actively avoid that genre. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So, like, I, you know, I do think it's a very well made movie, and if you're listening to this and it sounds like you can bear it, then it's definitely worth watching. But as Scar would say, be prepared. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so what what are our recommendations for people coming out of this? What should people check out? Greg, do you have a recommendation for people? You know, if I may, I'm actually going to recommend not a movie, but a book and a book without pictures at Ooh, that. Gross. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, but it's a book you've heard of. It's called The Shining. And I am specifically recommending the book, Ooh, great and, book. Not, and not the movie. Because um, the Stanley Kubrick movie is great for what it is. It's a very, very scary, surreal horror movie. I can't deny that. But it's easy to see why Stephen King was furious with it. Because uh, a really essential aspect of of the book that is basically absent from the movie, unless you really want to give credit, like a whole lot of credit to things that are left unsaid and unshown is the theme of the breakdown of a family. Um, And specifically uh, the breakdown of a family due to abuse. In the case of The Shining, abuse born largely out of alcoholism. You know, the thing that's so hard to explain to people who have only seen the movie when I'm trying to convince them to read the book is in the movie, they go to this haunted hotel and Jack, the character, pretty much immediately goes insane and starts trying to kill his family yeah. in the book. And this is why I don't think it could be adapted because prose is the medium of the inner monologue. We spend about a third of that story in Jack's head where he starts out as a mostly decent man and gradually over the course of the book starts to lose his mind and turn on his family and become this monster. And it's so much scarier because we see that gradual transformation. I mean, there are certain things in in horror that just will always hit certain people. And for me, it's the idea of people you love turning on you. And Hereditary obviously does that incredibly. So if that's something that speaks to you, you know, I know Stephen King doesn't need like my help, <laughs> you know, getting exposure, but it Maybe really Joe is Hillstead? It, it it really is that underappreciated book. Oh yeah, Joe Hill's dad. He writes- I mean, it's really not a surprise why Stephen King doesn't like the Stanley Kubrick movie. The whole book is Stephen King's way of writing a self-insert character going, I'm not an unforgivable monster because of my addictions. And Kubrick went, 
what if we change it so it's a movie about how you actually are an unforgivable monster because of your addictions? Yeah. And also, you've always, like, you've basically always been an unforgivable monster. You're not fighting this at all. Like, the moment a ghost offers you alcohol, yeah, like, you're gee, like, sure. I, <laughs> you have ghost alcohol and ghost sex, and then I, you're crazy. I wonder why Stephen King has some complicated feelings. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, not to brag, but I don't, I don't personally drink much. I don't have a drinking problem. I am drinking a white claw right now. Uh, so if a ghost bartender offered me a drink, I might be inclined to take it. But, you know, I know my limits of how much ghost alcohol I can consume before going crazy. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, when there's the ghost, you always ask for proof. Um, Oh, (laughs) Emily, what do you recommend? Possessed of spirits. Um, The witch. Yeah. Um, I recommend the witch. And, you know, if you like movies that make you feel like everything is a really bad dream, you know, you can try that David Lynch shit out. It's not for everyone, but yeah, Jeremy doesn't like it. It's fine. You're valid, Jeremy. I wondered about that. Don't listen to anything they say. You're totally valid. Even if you don't like nonlinear stories, which I don't think you don't like nonlinear stories. That's fine. Your stories are fine. As long as I can put them back together when I'm done. Uh, Anyway. Yeah. So. Those are my recs. All right. Ben, what have you got? Gonna make it short and sweet and easy. If you want another movie about a complicated and fraught mother-daughter relationship, check out Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. Great movie. In its own way, very scary, but not in the way that her eyes are scary. Yes. Yes. Less demon cults in Lady Bird. Well, it it does take place in Sacramento, so uh, I said less, not no demon cults. The demon cults are more off screen than this, even. Yeah. I mean, have you ever been to Sacramento? Um, I grew up there. No wonder. Uh, no, I've been talking to them. It's oh, more yeah. of an audience question. Um, yeah. What I wanted to recommend uh, was the 2022 movie Hellbender. Hey. It <laughs> is. I haven't heard of this one. It is a very much related kind of in that it is made largely by a mom, a dad, and a daughter. Um, And it is a movie directed by the dad, starring the mom and daughter, and their other daughter as well, who is playing a neighbor kid, that is about this mom and this daughter who live out in the wilderness and have their own like death metal band that they uh, play together, and they uh, have a great relationship. But it slowly becomes clear to the daughter that the mom is keeping her out there and keeping her away from people, not because she, in fact, is sick, as she's been told that she is, but because she has some creepy magical powers that the mom has been trying to protect other people from and keep her from knowing about. It is, in a lot of ways, similar to the relationship between like the grandma and the kids in, in this movie. Except the mom is like, nah, you probably shouldn't know about and do all this stuff because when you get in and you get really into the magic, bad things happen. And the daughter is much more determined to uh, let bad things happen. It's really good. It's a really small movie, but like, I, I think packs a punch. It's on Shutter. That's where I discovered it this last year. It was a movie I hadn't really heard anything about, but it was one of the like top rated horror movies on Rotten Tomatoes this last year. So I checked it out, and it was uh, toward the top of my list for 2022. Well, I never heard of it before, but I'm definitely going to be checking that out. It sounds really, really fascinating. I do have one other very important 
recommendation to give to people, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, and that is the concept of therapy. Yes. Go right. to therapy. I thought, is it therapy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Communicate. It, no, yeah. it's, it's we therapy. We recommend therapy. Find, yes, find good, re good, good recommendation. Not every therapist is going to be right for you. You know, it is a bit of a process, but it's worth it. It's really a miracle of modern medicine that once a week you could just sit down and tell this professional what is wrong with your brain and they help you make your brain better and make life feel more navigatable, if that's a word. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'd go so far as to say that, uh, before you watch Hereditary, may maybe first find a good therapist. Yeah. Whatever David Cronenberg tells you, they will not make you grow a womb outside of your body that produces evil troll children. No, nor will they convince you that you're secretly a serial killer to cover up for their own serial killer crimes. And then you have to escape to this weird mutant underground and uh, I don't remember much else of what happens in Nightbreed. Nightbreed? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's about it. Yeah. But I mean, if yeah. you want to, if you want to run away to a cool mutant underground, by all means. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't believe that that's a therapist thing. Inclusive <laughs> therapists.com for real though. Yeah. Absolutely. Good. Good recommendation. On that note, Greg, can you tell people uh, where they can find you online and uh, learn more about what you're up to? Uh, I am still regrettably on Twitter at <laughs> Greg Silber. I have a Hive account that I started and I haven't really done much with it because I heard that that's its own dumpster fire. You can also find me on Instagram at Greg Silber. And even though I am still on a freelancing hiatus, you could find my writing all over the internet. Not all over the internet. The comics internet, fine. But uh, yeah, if, if you search Gregory Paul Silber, not just Greg Silber, because that's going to bring you to the marine biologist. No relation. But there's a whole backlog of uh, Gregory Paul Silber written content that you could read, including, uh, if you like horror my four-page mini-comic with Jonah Newman that I'm currently working on a sequel to called Benny Beck Vampire Killer about a Jewish vampire hunter who kills Nazi vampires with the help of a golem. I'm making appreciative gestures. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. As for the rest of us, you can find Emily at Megamoth on Twitter at Mega underscore Moth on Instagram and at Megamoth.net. Ben is on Twitter at Ben the Con and on their website at BenConComics.com where you can pick up all of their books, including the pre-order link to L. Campbell Wins Their Weekend, their debut middle grade novel from Scholastic. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrome 58 and on my website at JeremyWhitley.com where you can check out everything I write, including pre-ordering the just announced middle grades graphic novel, The Dog Knight. From me, Brie Indigo, and Melissa Capriglioni coming so this stoked. May. So, so stoked. Check that out. Order that. It, it looks amazing, Jeremy. I got say. Yes. Oh, oh, I'm so excited. It's going to be awesome. It is a book that I was excited about, like, from the time I came up with it and every, like, bit of it that's been added to it, including, like, the, you know, the artists and everything on it, just made it 
that much better. So I'm, I'm super excited for us to actually get to share it with the world because it has been in development since before the pandemic started. So <laughs> it's, it's about time it got out there. And of course, once you finish pre-ordering all of our books, you can find the podcast on Patreon at Progressively Horrified on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm and on Twitter at Prague Horror Pod, where you, we would love to hear from you. You can leave reviews, give us five stars, and it'll help us uh, reach new folks out there and, and find new listeners. And thank you again to Greg for joining us. This was a ball. This is much more fun than watching her and Terry by myself and then not talking <laughs> about it for days. Yes. Yes. Well, that's the theme. You have to, you know, whether it's a scary movie or, you know, the death of a loved one, you've got to talk about it with people. That's how you cope. Yes. Communicate. Make art about it. Just make sure that the animals are dead first by natural causes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe don't make traumatizing dioramas of it that your your son will see after after (laughs) done this horrible thing but aside from that you know uh, you can make dioramas about watching hereditary if you like i'm sure it's very about anything you want just you know you have to take responsibility for your art if you're going to be sharing it with an audience (laughs) yes uh Um, and sorry emily what was that i don't remember All right. And thank you, as always, to Ben and Emily for joining me. Thank you to all of us for joining us. And until next time, stay horrified.